0: all eternity. Thank you for the grace to save us. We once were lost, now we are found. I pray that every person in this room would be able to say that, would know that and that that would be the most precious truth in all of life to them. That our names have been written in the book of life is an awesome thing that you have pursued us. Loved us in spite of our rebellion. Redeemed us and ransomed us from ourselves and from our sin. And you have adopted us into your family. And you've made us different. You've changed us. You've given us a new life. You've given us a new spirit. The old way is gone. The new has come. And so Lord, teach us what that means. Teach us what we don't know, Lord. Show us what we aren't aware of. Open our eyes to what we're blind to this morning. God, I pray from your word you would, you would teach us the right way to think. That your word would instruct us and build the categories into us so that we could think about ourselves and our, our world and our lives through your truth. And so, Lord, where we're, where we're too legalistic, I pray you'd bring us back to the truth. Where we're too licentious, Lord, I pray you'd bring us back to the truth where we don't see clearly enough, would you you show us with clarity your truth? Where we've been hardened in our heart against your truth, would you soften that today? Where we've not submitted to what you have said, to what you have done, would you help us to surrender ourselves to your truth and whatever that means for our lives? Speak, Lord. Your, Your servants are listening to you. We open Your Word with this joyful anticipation that Your Word would do its work in our lives so that You would be glorified and so that we would get massive joy. Teach us today. We pray You do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Church family, what a joy to worship our Savior together this morning. Go ahead and grab your copy of Scripture and turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible with you, you might be able to find one of those black hardback Bibles in the rack in front of you. If you grab one of those, it's on page 942 of that black hardback Bible. 942. So we began studying passage by passage through the book of Romans in January. And we are now entering Romans chapter 6. So just to give you a heads up on what's coming up, where we are, because several of you have asked what's the the plan, where we're at in this. We're going to spend another five or six weeks working our way through Romans 6 and 7, but then we're going to take a short break around the month of July from the book of Romans. It's going to be a chance to sort of catch our breath, to take a step back before we prepare to climb the mountain of Romans chapter 8. It's as if we're gonna sort of regroup and gear up before we head on this trek up the Great Eight. And so this fall, the plan, God willing, is to walk slowly through Romans 8 through 11 before Christmas. And then starting in January 2024, the plan is to study Romans 12 through 16 together. And so if all of that works according to plan, which is a big if, this series will finish about one year from right now, about one year. From right now. So, a lot of Romans still ahead of us, a lot of opportunity to come get in on this amazing study. However, we don't know what tomorrow will bring, and so my commitment is to be all here this morning and focus on the passage that is before us, which is Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. The plan is to study this passage in two parts this Sunday, 1 through 10, heavy on doctrine. And next Sunday, 11 through 14, heavy on application and response. So follow along as I read God's word over us. I'm going to read all of Romans 6, 1 through 14. We'll do that both this Sunday and next Sunday. Follow along as I read God's word over us. Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you Since you are not under law, but under grace. This is the authoritative word of our God. May he etch its truth on our hearts. So, Paul ended Romans chapter 5 and the celebration that we have because we have justification in Jesus with verse 20. Look at Romans chapter 5, verse 20. This is how He ended His celebration of what we have. He said, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. He says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So, Adam's sin led to death and condemnation for all. But Jesus brings life and grace. And so, where sin increases in us, He says grace abounds. The more we sin, He says, the more grace reigns and shines brightly. No matter how abundant sin is in us, the grace of Jesus is more. Where sin increases, grace abounds. So in a sense, you could say, grace is magnified the deeper our sin is because grace goes deeper than our sin grace always outpaces our sin he says and so grace is magnified the deeper that our sin and rebellion is grace gets seen and known as lovely and deep and passionate so Perhaps the logical conclusion to what Paul is saying in chapter 5 is that we ought to sin it up. If grace is magnified by our sin, then we should sin boldly and without restraint so that grace can abound all the more, right? And everybody says, man, this is the kind of church I want to be a part of right here. (laughs) However, that's not the conclusion Paul draws. Which, by the way, side point, means we can't always trust our logic, friends. We must submit our logic to the truth of God's Word. Logic itself is not authoritative. Because you can draw all kinds of wrong conclusions if you think logically only. But we have to submit ourselves to the truth of God's Word. And so what does Paul say to that kind of logic? He says that's not the conclusion he would draw. In chapter 6 and 7, what Paul is going to do is he is going to address how believers relate to their sin. How does the justified person view and battle their sin? Justified people aren't done with sin. We still have to battle the effects of Adam's trespass. And so, how do justified believers relate to their sin? That's what Paul is going to take up beginning here in chapter 6. And so, before we see how Paul answers that question, just look at how he raises the objection in verse 1. So, his response to all that he's been saying is: What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may? Abound. So, Paul has been preaching the Gospel for many years at this point. He knows the kind of objections that people are going to raise toward it. And one of the main objections to the Gospel of the free grace of God is that it creates a lackadaisical attitude towards sin. It creates lawless people. The technical term is antinomianism, which means against the law. People who say there's no law, there's no rules, we, we don't have to do Anything. If we are justified by faith and not by what we do in spite of our sin, then why do anything good? If grace abounds all the more because of my sin, then why not keep on sinning? Now before we see how Paul answers this kind of nonsense, let's just acknowledge the seeds of this kind of thinking in our own lives. Have you ever said or thought to yourself, I'm just gonna do this sinful thing that I really wanna do, and I'll ask for forgiveness later. After all, I'm not hurting anyone, am I? A lot of people have done this very same thing and worse, and they're still fine. After all, God has to forgive me, doesn't He? He promised He would. Or have you ever said something like this? I'm sure not out loud, but in your heart. I don't really know, I don't really need to obey God in this way. Since I'm not saved by my obedience anyway, I mean what's the what's the point of obeying in this way? Do I really need to read my Bible? Do I really need to tithe on my income? Do I really need to share the gospel with others if those things don't make me right with God? Paul is about to put some sticks of dynamite under this kind of licentious thinking, and he is gonna burn it to the ground. You see. Whenever the true gospel is proclaimed, that our salvation is done in Jesus, there will be people who scoff at it because it sounds like a license to sin. You know you're preaching the truth of the finished work of Jesus on the cross when it gets the legalists all riled up and they want to respond with, but don't we have to do something? Here's how John Stott says it in his commentary on Romans, Stott says, if we are proclaiming Paul's Gospel with its emphasis on the freeness of grace and the impossibility of self-salvation, we are sure to provoke the charge of antinomianism. If we do not arouse this criticism, the likelihood is that we are not preaching Paul's Gospel. Stott goes on to say, Paul answered, Paul's answer to his critics is that God's grace not only forgives sin but also delivers us from sinning for grace does more than justify it also sanctifies if you want a just a brief summary of Romans chapter 6 and 7 and probably 8 too that would be a fantastic summary that God's grace not only forgives sins, that's what we've been talking about in Romans, but God's grace also delivers us from sinning. It is grace not just to justify, but it is grace also that sanctifies. So, what is Paul's response to this objection that the gospel encourages living in sin? That's the objection. If if what you're saying is true, Paul, then you're just encouraging people to just live in sin. What's Paul's response to that? Well, notice the initial response in verse 2 is an exclamation, by no means. That's the initial response. God forbid, Paul says, or to put it in more modern vernacular, perish the thought. Paul could not be any more emphatic in his denial of this kind of thinking. May it never be. By no means. But my question when I hear Paul say that, by no means, God forbid, perish the thought. My question is why? Why is that kind of thinking unthinkable? What is Paul going to say that makes this the atrocious thinking that it is? Well, that's what he's going to talk about for the next several chapters. And so let's begin that discussion this morning by highlighting... Five statements that Paul makes about believers who are justified. Now that they are justified, this is who believers are. So again, this morning is going to be heavy on truth and what we should know. Notice Paul's emphasis in this passage on knowing we should know these things. So, heavy on doctrine and truth this morning, and then God willing next Sunday, heavy on application and response in verses 11-14. through 14. And so, five statements that Paul makes about what has happened to us. Believer, don't you want to know what has happened to you? Don't you want to know what justification means in your life? That's what Paul is going to do. What, what is it that has happened to us that makes living in sin unthinkable? Well, here are five truths. Number one, believers have died to sin. Believers have died to sin. So the first thing Paul says about the foolishness of this objection, verse 2, how can we who died to sin still live in it? by no means. Why? Because we died to sin. We can no longer still live in it. So his answer is to how we can still live in sin is we can't. We died to sin. So he's saying in justification a funeral happens. The believer is dead to his former sin. Sins, guilt and death and condemnation are dead to us. How can we keep living in it now we have to ask the question what does this mean what does it mean that we died to sin this is so important to understand because Paul says it happened to us what does it mean that we died to sin because clearly it does not mean that believers no longer sin or no longer want to sin if you ever hear anyone teach that please run as quickly as you possibly can that's not what this means Paul is in fact going to address that specifically in chapter 7. We still as believers have a sin nature. And Paul is also not saying here that we ought to die to sin. This is not a command. This is a statement of fact. Paul says this did happen to us. Later he's going to say consider yourself dead to sin as a command, but this is a statement of fact. So he's not saying this is how we ought to live. He's saying this is what has happened to us. So what does it mean? Well, I think the context helps us a lot here in understanding what Paul is saying. I think Paul is saying that when we are justified, we are no longer under sin's reign and rule. We are no longer enslaved to sin as our master. Notice the last few words of verse 2. I think this is really important. So he, the, the rhetorical question he's asking is, how can we who died to sin still live in it? You see the emphasis here? To live in sin is to be ruled by sin. To live in something is to be ruled by that thing. But Paul says believers no longer reside in sin. That's not our home anymore. Our death to sin means we have a new residence. We don't live. We don't dwell. We don't continue in sin anymore. You see, before we were reconciled to God, we were slaves to sin. Listen, unbelievers cannot do anything but sin. Unbelievers can do nothing but sin. How do I know that? Romans 14 says, whatever does not come from faith is sin. Unbeliever means you have no faith. If you don't have faith, it means you're sinning. Everything unbelievers do is sin. They are ruled by sin as their master. It's their dictator. Their sinful desires rule over them, reign over them. They are Adam's descendants, as Paul has said, and death reigns in them. Now, however, Paul says we die to sin. Which means sin no longer rules and reigns and dominates us we can now, as believers, resist and fight our sin. We have new life inside of us by the Spirit. We have a new master, a new home that we dwell in. Before we were justified, we were neither willing nor able to obey God because we are in Adam. But in Christ, in conversion, God makes us both willing and able to obey Him, to not sin, because we are connected to Christ. So, that we have died to sin does not mean we no longer struggle with sin, we no longer sin, we no longer influenced by sin. No, it means that we died to sin as our master. We died to sin as our dictator. We can, we are able to not sin now that we are justified, now that we are believers. We can obey God from the heart now. Sin does not reign over us. It's death. It's condemnation. It's not our future. We died to it. And the rest of this passage is going to flesh out what Paul means. And so look at the second thing that's true of us. So I think point number one is the main point of this passage. And all these other points are going to be explaining what it means that we died to sin. So here's the second truth. Believers were baptized into Jesus. Believers were baptized into Jesus. So in verse 2, Paul says that we died to sin, and then in verses 3 and 4, he gives this illustration to further clarify what has happened to us. And the illustration he gives in verses 3 and 4 is the illustration of baptism. Verse 3 says that we were baptized into Jesus' death. And being baptized into Jesus' death means we cannot continue passionately plunging ourselves into sin. Now, as you can imagine, there's a lot of debate about the meaning of verses 3 and 4. Just a newsflash. However one sees their theology of baptism is how they read this passage. So I understand my theology of baptism is, is influencing how I read this passage. But some commentators emphatically deny that Paul is speaking here about water baptism. They then proceed to spiritualize the concept of baptism, and it fits with their theology, their practice of baptism. However, the word baptize literally means to plunge or immerse something under water. Baptism is a water-specific word. Sure, the concept of Immersion in water. Baptism can be used as a metaphor for being immersed into something else. Sure, I acknowledge that. But if there's nothing here in the text that would cause us to interpret baptism against its natural and normal meaning, I submit to you it's best just to read it at face value. It means what it says. Being immersed in water as a demonstration of what has happened to us spiritually is the concept that Paul is wanting us to think about to illustrate that we have died to sin. Notice that Paul is assuming here that Christians in Rome have indeed been baptized. Paul has no category for unbaptized believers. And not only does he assume believers have been baptized, but he also assumes the believers knew about their baptism. Which poses a problem to those who want to baptize infants or toddlers. Baptism is by its very nature something you know you are doing. Something you are aware of what it means. So, Paul says, when we were baptized, I think connecting it to our conversion, when we were baptized, but connecting all of that together, we were baptized into Jesus' death. We were buried with Jesus. And subsequently, just as Jesus was raised from the dead in baptism, we were raised with Jesus to new life. And so baptism symbolizes, it proclaims the Gospel of Jesus, that Jesus died for our sins and He rose victoriously from the dead. If you want to understand what it means to be forgiven of sin and cleansed from sin and given a new life, baptism is the visible portrayal of this. Baptism is the picture of what has happened to us when we died to sin and were given new life in him this by the way is the reason why we baptize by immersion in water rather than just sprinkling or pouring not only do we have the new testament examples of baptism by immersion but sprinkling does not communicate this the death and resurrection of jesus like immersion does the imagery of death of burial of going under the water and being raised out of the water is the image Paul wants us to see in our minds right here colossians 2:12 says you were buried with him in baptism in order that you were raised in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of god who raised him from the dead baptism symbolizes our death to sin And so baptism's purpose is to do that, is to show us that what has happened to us spiritually when we trust in Jesus, we are united to Him in His death and in His resurrection. His death becomes our death, and His life becomes our life. In baptism, we depict what has happened to us. And so Paul is saying, the reason we can't continue living in sin is because we have died with Christ. We have been buried with Him. And we have been raised in newness of life. And our baptism shows that. And now that we are justified, we are fundamentally different. We have died to sin. And we have been given this new life in the Spirit. And so what Paul does next, starting in verse 5, is he fleshes this out even further. So these next two points really are not new points, but there's further clarifications of what's happened to us symbolized by our baptism. And these next two points, I am, I am zealous for us to understand as a church. Notice number three. The third truth is this. Believers are united to Jesus in His death. Believers are united to Jesus in His death. This is Paul's main explanation of what it means that we died to sin. Paul explains that when Jesus died, we died with Him. Jesus' death is our death to sin. So verse 5 is a key verse. And then Paul goes on to explain this even more in the following verses. So notice verse 5. Verse 5 says, "...we have been united with Jesus in a death like His." We've been united to Jesus in a death like His. What does that mean? Well, I think verse 6 explains it further. Look at verse 6. Paul says, we know. Again, notice the emphasis on knowing. This is something to know this morning. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So verse 6 says, Because we've been united to Jesus in His death, three things are true of us. Paul says our old self was crucified with Jesus. Our old man, that old fleshly, those fleshly desires and our sin, that has been crucified with Jesus. When Jesus died, our old man was crucified with Him. Secondly, Paul says, our body of sin was brought to nothing. Our flesh was brought to them. Our flesh can no longer condemn us. Our flesh can no longer hold us back from the grace of our God. And three, Paul says, we are no longer enslaved to sin. Our old self was crucified, the body of sin was brought to nothing, and we are no longer enslaved. No longer under sin's reign and rule. And I think all three of these descriptions of verse 6 are saying the same thing in different ways. Paul is saying, we are no longer under sin's dictatorship. We died to sin in the death of Jesus, and therefore we cannot live in it any longer. Why can we not continue in sin as believers? Because we died to it in the death of Jesus. So when Jesus died on the cross, Paul says, if we are united to Him by faith, We died with him. Clearly, Paul's not referring to our physical death, our physical death, but to our death to sin. Jesus died to sin, that's the language he uses in verse 10. And in his death, we also died to sin. Our old sinful flesh crucified on the cross with Jesus, which is why we can no longer live in sin. Because we have been crucified with Christ. In Jesus, we die to our sinful nature and we are no longer enslaved to our old ways. Jesus put that old man to death by his death on the cross. And these, Paul says, are objective facts. These are objective facts. Whether you feel this or not, Paul says, know this to be true. This is what happened to you. Verse 10 says that Jesus died once for all. In other words, His death was completely sufficient. Unlike Old Testament sacrifices that need to be performed over and over and over again, Jesus died once and He will never die again. Verse 9 says that Jesus will never die again because death no longer has dominion over Him. And so friends, if you are united to Jesus, His death is sufficient to free you from your enslavement to sin because Jesus is free from sin. Jesus paid it all. No sacrifice for sin remains. When Jesus said, it is finished, He meant it. He died once for all, and we died in Him. Our old self has been crucified with Christ. So united to Him, His death is our death. We are united to Him in His death. Again, this doesn't mean we don't struggle with our sin nature. Rather, this means we do battle against our sin nature as those who have been crucified with Christ. As those who have been set free from sin's enslavement. We struggle to put sin to death as those who have already died to sin in the death of Jesus. This is our union with Christ. Our union with Jesus that explains what it means that we died to sin and no longer live in it. You know why we don't live in sin anymore? Because we're united to Jesus. And Jesus died to sin once for all. But there's yet more good news in our union with Christ. Notice the fourth truth. Notice the fourth truth about what happened to us. Number four, believers are united to Jesus in His resurrection. Believers are united to Jesus not only in His death, but also in His resurrection. Notice the second half of verse 5. So if we've been united with Him in a death like His... Paul says we shall, I love this next word, certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. It just wouldn't be right to die with Jesus but not rise also with Jesus. So if Jesus died and rose again, we died and certainly we will also be raised. If we are united to Jesus in His death, then we also will be united to Him in His resurrection. When Jesus rose from the dead, so did we. Now, Paul's going to further explain union with Christ and His resurrection in verses 8 and 9. Notice verse 8. He again unites our death with Jesus and our resurrection with Jesus. If we have died with Christ, we believe, so notice what we know, what it is we understand, we believe that we will also live with Him. Listen, it would be fantastic news this morning to be set free from the power of sin by the death of Jesus. That is fantastic news. But even more fantastic is that we are not just free, but we are also alive in Jesus. Because of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, we are given this life in Him. And we are given the certainty of resurrection life in the future. We have now and we will always have resurrection life pervading through our souls. And notice verse 9. Now, contrary to what most English translations have here, verse 9 does not start a new sentence in the original. Instead of starting the sentence with we know, it would be actually better to translate this first word of verse 9 as knowing. So the idea Paul is communicating is that since we believe that we will also live with Him, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. In other words, our belief that we have life rest on the fact of Jesus' resurrection. Because we know that Jesus rose from the dead, we know that we will also live with Him. And verse 9 says Jesus is done with death forever. Death no longer has dominion over Jesus. And what is true of Jesus, it's true of us because of our union with Christ. If the vine lives, the branches live. We are dead to sin. And we are alive in Jesus. Well, the fifth and the final truth I want you to see in this passage about what's happened to us. We'll do it very briefly, and that is this. Believers are set free from sin. Believers are set free from sin. So verse 7 further clarifies what it means to say we are dead to sin. What does it mean that we're dead to sin? Well, it means that if we have died with Jesus, we... Have also been set free from sin. So it's not just that Jesus died and we could possibly be free from sin. That's not the idea. No, when he died, we died with him, and thus we are free from sin's enslavement, just as Jesus is free. My chains are gone. I've been set free. I am dead to sin. I am no longer enslaved to sin's tyranny over me. Sin and death and condemnation is not my final chapter. I am free in Jesus from sin's enslavement. Now, that's all I'm going to say about that because Paul is going to expand on this truth in verses 15-23 through of chapter 6 where he's actually going to say we are now slaves to righteousness. He's gonna say, We are free to be slaves to righteousness. We'll look forward to that in a couple weeks. But, believer, hear this good news this morning. Hear this good news that is oh so practical for daily living. You have died to sin, you have been baptized into Jesus, you have died with Jesus. You have been raised with Jesus. You have been set free from sin. What good news for those of us who know the justification and the grace of our God. And next week we're going to look at Paul's practical implications that he gives in verses 11 through 14. But let me just close this morning with just two specific exhortations for us based on these truths. First, I want you to know that your conversion was radical. Your conversion was as radical as you you and I can imagine. Becoming a Christian, friends, is not a minor change. Becoming a Christian is not just adding Jesus to your already full life. When we become a Christian, a death occurs. When we are justified, a resurrection occurs in our lives. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Does that sound like a minor thing to you? Does that sound like just a little minor adjustment to life? No, the old is gone. The new has come. We are not the same people, friends. We are radically different. We are dead to sin and we are alive in Jesus. In Christ, we are new people. A radical transformation has happened that makes continuing in unrepentant sin impossible. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Here's the second and the final exhortation. But I want you to hear, experience and enjoy your union with Jesus. Experience and enjoy your union with Jesus. I don't think in the church we talk about union with Jesus enough. Union with Jesus is literally the key to living the Christian life. How shall we live in this world, in this body? We live united to Christ. Experience that and enjoy that. I'm zealous for us, for myself, to understand and embrace this more and more. If you are trusting in Jesus, you died when Jesus died, and you were made alive by Jesus' resurrection. Think for a moment about your union with Christ. We have been sovereignly attached to Jesus as our vine. His death to sin was our death to sin. And His resurrection life is running through our veins. We're that united. So The idea I think sometimes we get of Christianity is that Jesus, uh, he, he died, He set up this massive trust fund for us so that we can just go and benefit from it whenever we want apart from Him. right? I think we get this idea that the grace of God is like a, a huge reservoir that we can go and just get a sip from whenever we're a little dry, whenever we're a little thirsty if we feel like it. No, that is not Christianity. A better way to understand Christianity is that all of the Father's blessings and promises and grace were won by Jesus. Jesus deserves all the limitless grace of God. And the reason you and I get to experience it is because we are united to Jesus. Jesus deserves all the rewards, all the promises that the Father has given. And we get to enjoy them because we are united to Him. We are connected to Him. Picture it this way. God's grace and blessing are like a massive waterfall a million times larger than the Niagara Falls. And the only person who deserves any drop of it is Jesus. It is all being poured out for all eternity on Jesus' head. And the only way you and I with all of our sin and all of our rebellion, the only way you and I get to drink from this massive waterfall of grace is because we are in Jesus. Eternal life is poured out on Jesus and we get to experience it because we are united to Him. We are grafted into this life-giving vine. Listen, none of God's blessings are given apart from Jesus. None. The only reason we get to experience anything good in this life and for eternity is because we get what Jesus gets. We are united to Him. What happens to the vine happens to the branches as well. And this is incredible news that is absolutely life-changing when we begin to embrace it and we begin to live in the good of it. And so, believer, do you see this morning why your union with Jesus is so vitally important to living life? All of God's blessings and rewards and promises are given to Jesus and it is only in union with Him that we can experience them in this life and enjoy them for all eternity. And so are you connected to Jesus by faith? Are you united to Jesus? Have you been broken off of the world as your source of life? And have you been grafted into Jesus? Are you united to Jesus? Are you... Are you united to the Savior? If not, you are still enslaved to your sin and you are spiritually dead and you can do nothing but sin against your God. 1 John 5 says this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. It's that simple. Jesus is life. Therefore, the only people who have true life are those who are united to Him. And so, my exhortation to you, believer, unbeliever, experience this. Enjoy this union with Jesus. And Let's pray that God would help us to experience and enjoy it for all eternity. Oh God, we don't deserve any of Your good and great blessings. We don't deserve even to have this blood coursing through our veins right now. We deserve death and hell and judgment. And yet, King Jesus paid it all, won it all, and we are united to Him. And because of that union with Him, we get to experience Your grace in abundance. So if that's true, Lord, how can we go on living in sin? How can we go on dishonoring and defiling Your name? Lord, teach us to live in this newness of life. Teach us to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to Jesus. Lord, our plea is ever, only, and always In Christ alone. So in Christ alone, our hope is found. United to Him is all our good. So, Lord, help us to experience this. Help us to enjoy it. It's a gift from you. We need you now. We pray for your help in Jesus' great name. Amen.